righteousness. We are looking for new heavens in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to get our first look at Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. We kind of rushed our way through the end of chapter 11 last week, but that's how the author wrote it. The author himself rushed through the end of the chapter as he was writing it because he said, time will fail me. And uh, this happens. And uh, so we covered it the way that uh, he wrote it and talked about those things. Um, Some folks were asking in between last week and this week if uh, I really was serious about that. Are we really going to start chapter 12 today or was I just teasing everybody? No, I wasn't teasing. We're starting chapter 12 today. So here we are. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you for the book of Hebrews, Father, for every book of the Bible, really, but this this book in particular is so pointed, related to our priesthood, related to the glories of your Son and our position in him, I thank you, Father, for the the great heroes of the faith that chapter 11 was filled with. But all those great heroes were looking forward to the coming of your beloved Son. And I thank you in Him we have the supreme example. In Him we have the prototype for our own Christian walk. And I pray as we fix our eyes on Him that we would understand the blessings that we have, the position, the experience, and the ultimate glory that we have by your grace. So, Father, this day is yours. Open our eyes to your truth. Open our ears. Soften our hearts. Bless us today with this feast. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Now, one thing I'm suspecting is that I have the wrong slideshow up here. I just realized. So... I can fix that. Update the shortcut. All right. To all appearances, it looks the same. (laughs) But the points that follow are a lot different because it's chapter 12 now where we are. All right. Therefore, and a very pointed therefore. There's different kinds of therefores, but this one is... uh, significant as it's taking all of chapter 11 and boiling it down to a, uh, a conclusion in Jesus. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also, we've got our day and age, we have our stewardship, this is our Christian walk, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author is including himself in this. In fact, verse 1 and verse 2 are both uh, in the first person plural. They're, they're called hortator, that he is exhorting them in his, uh, in his appeal for obedience. And, and rather than uh, simply commanding them in the second person to obey and do what they're told, he includes himself in this. It's part of the, the oratory device of including yourself in a command by saying, hey, come on guys, let's go do this. And so he, the author includes himself. That's true in verse 1, that's true in verse 2. Two, but then in verse three, he does switch to the second person and he addresses the readers alone when he says, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He turns it right on them and and focuses that spotlight because they were on the verge of falling short. And uh, all throughout the epistle, we've been studying this, that they were on the verge of, of failing to enter into rest, that there was a segment of them that wanted to return to Judaism, wanted to return back to the Jewish traditions of of the Old Testament past and to reject the church blessings of the New Testament present. And so much of this book has actually been centered on that. 
And so to have uh, kind of brought that back into focus here in, in chapter 12 and verse 3 is not uh, really a surprise at this point. And starting with verse 1, what we're looking at here, the Old Testament witnesses, the crowd that we read about in chapter 11, they have now filled the stadium, so to speak. And so they are seated now to observe the church run our race. The imagery here is the image of, a, of an athletic event, of a race, of the Olympic Games, and they are surrounding. In fact, the same language used here for surrounding us would be the idea of, a, of an audience that's in a full circle around a performer on a stage or on a, on a field, on a, in a stadium, as it were. And this great cloud of witnesses, and they're called a cloud, which is interesting because in our day and age we've got all this discussion about things on the cloud and different things there. Well, we've got a cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us. And just to remind you, these witnesses are not the people per se, but the testimonies that they obtained. Uh, Moses himself obtained five or six different testimonies. Abraham obtained three or four different testimonies that were spoken of there in chapter 11. And so just uh, flip a page back so I can remind you of this. Uh, as chapter 11 started, the faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old obtained a witness. It says gained approval is the translation in the New American Standard Bible, but in the passive voice the verb is martyreo, to bear witness. And they obtained a witness. And the blessings that, that we obtain when we walk by faith is exactly the same. We obtain a witness that God himself observes what we do and he bears testimony to our faith. The angels observe what they do. They bear testimony. We obtain a witness. And uh, same thing holds true, by the way, if we're not walking right. We obtain a different kind of witness at that point. So we can't avoid obtaining a witness. Everything we do is going to obtain a witness. But we want to obtain the blessings of a righteous witness from God himself by walking in the light, by walking by faith, by glorifying our Savior. And so they obtained a witness. And so starting with Abel, he obtained a witness in his faith and it's recorded for us in the scriptures. We can be edified by the witness of Abel's faith. We can be edified by the witness of Enoch's faith, the witness of Noah's faith. And all of these heroes that are mentioned, and they're called, they're called heroes, they're men of whom the world is not worthy. And all the things that they went through and every witness they obtained was pointing forward to something they would not physically see living on this earth. But the witness remains. And the witness is in Scripture and the witness remains. And so when we have a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's the, the imagery where chapter 12 begins. It's as if we're on the, we're, now we're on the field. We're the athletes. We're the ones that have to run with endurance. And we're on the field and it is the, the stadium is packed. And the stadium is packed with... Um, probably the worst spectators you can imagine to make you as, uh, as nervous as possible. Now let me rephrase that. The, the stadium is packed with the best witnesses you can imagine. The best observers for your walk of faith are these heroes that they themselves walked that walk of faith. They themselves experienced what we're experiencing. See, so they are the witnesses. And it's it's, it's interesting, as the language is expressed here, we are surrounded, they are the witnesses, but it's, we're, technically we're still witnessing them as we run, if, if that makes any sense. That's a reminder that we have to run with endurance, a reminder that we can't give up. We might be tempted to give up. We might, uh, we might grow weary, we might lose heart, we may decide, you know what, it's, uh, it's not worth it. But then we look up to the stands and we see one of our heroes up there. We see Daniel or we see Noah or we see whoever, David, and we think, wow, they didn't give up. And so that then forms an additional uh, motivation, forms an additional uh, goad to our endeavors. And the best witness of all, or the worst witness of all, depends on how you want to phrase it, but is Jesus. What did Jesus endure? When did he give up? When did he throw in the towel or decide to go carnal? Never. And so that's the ultimate witness beyond the whole rest of the cloud put together is the infinite witness of Jesus Christ. The fact that he's walked our walk, he's experienced what we've experienced, tempted in all things even as we are yet without sin. And he's watching. He's in the stands. 
Do you want to, you know, do you want to bail now with Jesus watching? I hope this helps. And the, and the scripture is designed to make it help. It's designed to remind you that he is watching. And uh, I think one of the, one of the best uh, tools for carnality is to forget that God is watching. <laughs> and so you get it in your mind that, uh, that you can get away with something or you get it in a mind or you just don't even think about it. Because if you think about it, it gets uncomfortable. So keep thinking about it. Keep recognizing that God is watching. And that Jesus himself, who went to the cross to purchase our eternal life, he is in the stands watching with the remainder of this great cloud of witnesses, observing the church run its race. In a lot of respects, you remember how chapter um, 11 ended, where it says uh, in verse 39, all of these having gained approval through their faith, having obtained a witness through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Every one of those Old Testament heroes physically died and went to Abraham's bosom. They did not see the kingdom of God arrive on this earth. We haven't seen it yet either, by the way. It's still future when the king arrives. It says in verse 40, because God has provided something better for us. And that them versus us, that's huge. People miss that. People blend that. People confuse that. Particularly when they try to defend replacement theology or to try to claim that the church is really uh, you know, New Testament Israel, or that Israel was really just Old Testament church. That is wrong. They are them and we are us. And the language here of them and us is, uh, is critical at the end of chapter 11. Because it says, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And really, in, the, in understanding the unfolding plan of God from, the, from Alpha to Omega, understanding how it worked with the angels, with the Gentiles, with Israel, now with the church, what happens after the church is removed? What's coming up next when, when the rapture takes us all to glory? Well, Israel resumes the program that was cut off when they, when they crucified their Christ. God's not done with Israel. That program continues. And so all of these things come together. Not only does God have a plan that is a sequential plan, but each of those elements within that plan has a, has a purpose. And if, if he doesn't finish his plan for the church... He can't finish his plan for the Old Testament saints. Does that sound awkward? Did I just tell God what he can't do? (laughs) Okay. Well, God himself said what he could not do. Because God put it in the Bible. Apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And so it's curious. And if you ever stop to wonder, you know, in in a sense... If you were here last hour, we're talking about our position in Christ as taught in the book of Colossians and other passages. But thinking about the, the, the privileges we have as the royal family of God, the, the position and blessings that we have in the church age, they didn't have those. They got saved looking forward for a coming Messiah. Messiah is coming someday. Someday the serpent's head will be crushed. Someday my sins will be removed. And they believed and they were saved But until the Redeemer went to the cross, their sins weren't removed. They were simply covered. They were simply atoned for. So they didn't die and go to heaven. They died and went to Abraham's bosom. They went to a place of comfort until such time as their sins could be removed. Then Jesus could take them to heaven. All right? So these things become important. Without the church age, apart from the body of Christ and the royal family of God, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And so we, uh, we see that not only are we the center of this, being suited as a bride for his beloved son, but these things are bigger than just the church by itself. That we're going to have ministry to Jews and Gentiles in the millennium. That we're going to have ministry to the thousand generations after the millennium. And the new heavens and new earth, when a thousand generations are born to love Jesus Christ. And the, the ministry of the church will have there become significant as well. So these witnesses are surrounding us. And they're watching us, we're watching them, and we run. It says, let us lay aside. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. We're supposed to lay these things aside, take them off and drop them. Now, (laughs) to illustrate... What did uh, the athletes do in the Roman world before they started their race? 
even the word gymnos, gumnos, is, is, it means naked. And the athletes would strip naked. That they would run with nothing but what they were born with. All right? That's the, that's the metaphor. What do we have that we're still holding on to that, that's slowing us down in our race? We're supposed to cast it aside. And you see, it's not even necessarily a sin. In fact, sin isn't even the first item. Sin is the second item that's listed here. The first item is the encumbrance. Something that in itself may not be sinful, but it's weighing you down. And so it has a similar effect to what sin has. Now a sin will actually tie you down, tangle you up, trip you up. Sin is worse than an an encumbrance. But even the encumbrance has to be laid aside so we can run with endurance the race that's set before us. All right, so we're going to take a few minutes this hour and we're going to talk about um, taking things off because we're told to in several passages of the New Testament. Uh, New Testament saints, we take off and lay aside all kinds of things, starting in Romans 13, 12. Let's get a list of everything we're supposed to take off here this morning. Romans 13, 12. Because this is a point that's made repeatedly throughout the New Testament. And when God makes the point over and over and over again, it kind of grabs our attention. And we realize, you know, we we probably shouldn't be ignoring this since he took the time to say it so many different ways and so many different times. Uh, Verse 11 of Romans 13 says, Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. What does he mean by that? He means that, that we're a whole lot closer to heaven today than we were yesterday. And each day that goes by gets us one day closer. And however long we've been saved, this could be our final day to lay up treasure in heaven to glorify Jesus Christ. We don't know when the trumpet's going to sound. It could be today. And so with that sense of imminency and uh, maybe physical death, maybe rapture, but we're all just day by day, moment by moment anyway. And it says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Isn't that beautiful? Our physical life is called night. And heaven is called day. And that's why the order was that way in Genesis. There was evening, there was morning, one day. There was evening and morning, two days. That's why the Jews start their, their day at sundown. Because it starts with the night. And then comes the day. And so um, our physical life almost being over, it's nearly time to wake up. Therefore let us take off, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, and put on the armor of light. So laying aside the deeds of darkness. All right, we recognize this. This is, this is a metaphor. Of course, we get this. It's like taking off a jacket or something. But taking off the deeds of darkness, laying it aside. We don't want any more of that. This isn't to earn salvation. This is because we're saved. This is because we have eternal life. He's given us the new life. We want to walk accordingly. And put on the armor of light. This is a little bit different armor than the Ephesians 6 armor. I think that one's the full battle armor. This one's the armor of readiness. And let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. You know, that's all stuff that he didn't need to save you for you to do all that kind of stuff. He could have left you unsaved and you could have kept doing all that kind of stuff. But he saved you. And now in Christ there's a new manner of life. So take off the deeds of darkness and put on, as it says in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Put on Jesus. So you take off one thing, you put on something else. Taking off the deeds of darkness, putting on Jesus Christ. That's not talking about getting saved. Everybody in this context is assumed to be saved. How's the unbeliever going to take off the deeds of darkness? But putting on Jesus Christ is far more than just getting saved. You've got to decide each day that you're going to wear Him. You're going to wear His image. You're going to bear His image to this lost and dying world. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice it's preventative. It's like an inoculation against sin. When you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are making no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. 
You're not paving the way for your next sin because you're, uh, you're circumventing it with this preventative technique of putting on Jesus. So there's a blessing connected to that. We have another such passage in Colossians 3 and verse 8. Colossians 3.8. Remember, Colossians chapter 3 is written to believers, those that have died in Christ, those that have been raised in Christ, those that have been uh, lifted up. Colossians 3 says, uh, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Are we clear? When you're looking at Colossians 3, 1 through 3, nobody here can possibly still be an unbeliever. Everybody in this context is saved. Everybody in this context has been raised up with Christ, is to be seeking the things above, setting their minds on the things above, so that the activity which is described next is not activity that you can be obedient for and try to earn salvation. We're past that already. We're not trying to earn or deserve anything with the activity. So verse 5 says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which all amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Notice, that's not you, that's those guys. The unbelievers. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, back in your unbelieving days. But now you also put them all aside. Take them off. It's the language of stripping, the language of getting naked. Take all these things, get rid of them. Strip them off. Lay them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. All those have to be laid aside. And then we're going to get dressed down in verse 12. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. So these metaphors are used for taking clothes off, putting better clothes on. And this is what happens when we're studying the Word of God, when the Word of God is transforming our thinking. That the the old garments are being cast aside, new garments are being put on. This is how we get dressed. Letting the Word of God transform us. And then it says, uh, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's Colossians 3.14, to put on love. Similar passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Verse 17 says, This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. You're past that now. You're not with them anymore. You have a new life in Christ. As it says, uh, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Notice that expression, learning Christ. Underline that. Pay attention to that. Because that's different from receiving Christ. Once you receive Christ, you need to begin then learning Christ. And until you receive Christ, you can't. So the unbeliever can't learn Christ. But once you receive Christ, once you're saved, you can start to learn Christ. And as you learn Christ, you have this transformation that takes place. You start stripping off the old garments and putting on the new garments. And there's less and less of you and more and more of Jesus with each each passing day in our Christian growth and transformation. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just this truth is in Jesus, then in reference to your former manner of life, You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Now that we know for a fact that this is experiential, this happens in time, we have to do it. We have to lay it aside. This is not what happens to us when we get saved. This is what we do after we're saved. 
as we're commanded to do it. And also that former manner of life is, is not annihilated, it's not dead, it's not gone, it's not buried, it's still lurking around. And it's even getting worse. Because the old manner of life is, is presently still continuously being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And when we got saved, not one thing happened to our physical bodies. <laughs> our souls were saved, our human spirits were made alive, but nothing whatsoever happened to our physical bodies. We still have the body of sin we were born with. That's why we have to lay these deeds aside. We have to choose this as the Word of God transforms us. So lay these aside and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It all comes as your mind is transformed by the Word of God. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Last hour we demonstrated why holiness and righteousness and blamelessness, why we're not waiting for the judgment seat of Christ to get those qualities. He's giving us those qualities now as the Word of God transforms our thinking. Therefore, laying aside falsehood. Laying aside falsehood. All these things we're supposed to take off and lay aside. Take off and lay aside. And I love these metaphors. The whole imagery of clothing, the whole ministry of getting dressed, is that you do it. And it's not an accident. You know, unless you're an infant or a newborn. I mean, I'm pretty sure most of us dressed ourselves this morning, as far as that goes. And uh, babies, of course, need help. But for the most part, speaking to uh, uh, you know, adult believers here, the, uh, what you choose to take off is what you choose to take off. And what you choose to not take off, that's on you. Likewise, what you choose to put on. And that's entirely your choice. So the metaphor is useful in this, in this capacity. Um, yeah, verse 25, therefore laying aside falsehood. And, and I, I don't know, I, I like the metaphor. I think it's useful. It's, uh, to me, it's vivid. To me, it communicates. It's, it's much more than just don't tell lies. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. It's not, I mean, the lie itself is a, is a sin, of course, but it's the, the mindset behind the sin that has to be laid aside. The old nature, the old man. We want to function in our new nature. The new nature can't sin. James 1, verse 21. Get past Hebrews and get to James. James 1 and verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You realize how damaging it is to keep wearing that old garment and then try to sit there in carnality while you're in Bible class? How much teaching gets through when you're in carnality? Because there's all kinds of meat and all kinds of good doctrine and and the only thing, just milk, bare milk can seep through carnality. Nothing else does. And so if you're going to take in the Word of God, you've got to lay those things aside. Laying aside or taking off all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. So we generally, as a rule, we start every Bible class with silent prayer. We start every Bible class. Every believer's got the opportunity to lay that stuff aside, to confess your sins. Say, if you get to church carnal, and Austin traffic probably got you there or something else, or you walked in and somebody said the wrong thing and you got your nose out of joint or whatever. You can make it to this room out of fellowship. But you can be in fellowship like that by confessing your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So take off those things. Because only in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit can you learn the Word of God and notice, with humility, receive the Word implanted. That's, that's pretty vivid too. Not only is it information being spoken and so the mouth speaks it, the ear hears it, but the actual truth itself becomes implanted. That's powerful language. Think about the things that get implanted. Okay? Think about a pregnancy and a, and a baby has just been implanted, a fertilized egg, and, and is now implanted 
And what happens when it's implanted? Yeah, it starts to grow. It t- it's a whole new life. And it comes alive inside of you. So this text talks about receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. It's going to kick you at just the right moment. When, when you're faced with a sin temptation and that little kick says, no, don't be doing that. The Word of God reminds you. And so it's a, it's a blessing there. Colossians says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And uh, combine that with this text and I think we've got a good, a good metaphor. Alright. So that's James 1.21. And uh, not only are we learning but we're also putting it into effect. Prove yourself doers of the Word and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. I think a hearer only is like a person where yeah, you take it in, you listen to it, but it's not implanted. And you're certainly not living it. It's not taking on a whole new life. And that's the language there. If you're just a, a hearer who deludes themselves, that's self-delusion. You walk away from church thinking, I'm a good person because I went to church. Really? What was implanted? How transformed are you? Are you willing now to put this doctrine into practice? Or were you just there for the entertainment? If you are, that's delusional. 1 Peter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So Peter uses the same metaphor. Probably learned it from Paul. <laughs> All right, We know he was studying the epistles of Paul. He, he found some of the stuff complicated. This part here wasn't complicated. He figured it out. It's simple. Absolutely simple. So take off that old garment, put on the new garment. So this is what we're told to do. And many passages of in the New Testament tell us to take off and lay aside all kinds of things. What Hebrews 12 is telling us to take off, to lay aside, is the encumbrances and the sins. Encumbrances and the sins. Understand, encumbrances, the weights, they may not be in themselves sinful. Might be nothing wrong with them at all. They're valid, they're legitimate, but they are weighing us down and they hinder our race. They weigh us down and they hinder our race. And so we have to ask ourselves, why am I holding on to this so firmly? Why am I so attached to this? Why am I not willing to let it go? And I think we've got some good examples of this. In Luke, we've got several stories that, that are linked here, as well as what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 and then in 2 Corinthians 6.14. So many athletic metaphors in Paul's writings. Of course, Corinth had uh, an Olympic venue and other places where Paul was. Rome, other places had Olympic venues. Let's go to Luke 8, 14. See what Jesus was talking about here. The things that weigh you down. You would serve God except. You know, I have a little butt that gets in the way of why you can't do something. Luke chapter 8 is the parable of the sower. And in the description of the, uh, in the parable, when the sower goes out to sow and where the different seed uh, landed. And then the explanation that Jesus gave. So we understand the sower went out to sow and some fell beside the road. That's the first target. Uh, it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil. And as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture in the rocky soil. That's a different issue. That's not what we're looking at this morning. But the, the uh, thorns, this is the encumbrance principle. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil, grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And so as we tend our garden, we want to clear away the stones, we want to clear away the thorns, 
We want to make sure that we have good depth of soil. So as the Word of God goes forth, we can receive the Word implanted, able to save our souls. And that's how he first gave the, uh, the parable. And then his disciples began to question him to see what the parable meant. And in verse 14 he describes it, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. They got so much other stuff going on they don't have time for serving the Lord, for taking what they've heard and putting it into practice. They heard it, they say, okay, that's nice, but they've got other priorities of life, other things are going on. And as he lays it out there, I'm thinking, wow, it's like he was speaking to our generation. (laughs) He's talking to 21st century American Christians here. Choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. When you think about the the prosperous culture we live in and the, the leisure time pursuits that we have and all of the, I mean, you can get famous doing all kinds of dumb stuff these days and you wonder, who has time for all that? Everybody has time for all that. Anyway, you know, in a lot of ways, life was simpler when it took 90% of the population to feed the population. That left only 10% of the population the leisure time for other pursuits. Now it's uh, crazy. Such a tiny number of people can feed everybody and everybody else can be doing other stuff. Still in the Gospel of Luke, let's go over to chapter 9. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And uh, yeah, right. You know, people say that and they get excited and they get emotional. And, and Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a subtle way of describing the fact that ministry has difficulties And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. You're you're willing to serve, but there's stuff to do in the meantime. And and I'll get to it someday. I'll get to it someday. But he said to them, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And so this is really, it's a parable about priorities. And what, when push comes to shove, what gets pushed and what gets shoved? Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. See, some people let go a little bit, but they keep looking back. And they haven't really let go at all. So that becomes a snare as well. Any of these things can be snares, it can be the encumbrances. They slow you down. How fast, if you're supposed to run with endurance the race that's set before you, how fast are you really running if you keep looking back to where you came from, to what you left, to what you wish you could bring with you? Anyway, there's other applications to be made here, but the idea that you can just postpone anything you want and and run it on your timetable fails to understand the nature of God and how He devised this test. Because you are where he put you and you are there now. And the the place where you are now is the place where you ought to be running. In any event, the whole thing, this this weekend's a little awkward, not awkward, emotional, a little bit, I don't know. I've been reminiscing uh, because it was on January 7th that, that we lost our soldier when I went to Desert Storm. 130 of us in the 411th MP company went to Desert Storm and one of us didn't come back. And he wasn't killed in combat. He was killed in a, in a vehicle accident. And, uh, and uh, he died on uh, January 7th. But the uh, 1990, 1991, 1991. Anyway, uh, the, it was interesting because before we shipped out from Fort Hood, we were told that we were expecting a 20% casualty rate. With the estimates were 20%. And uh, they were all concerned about Saddam and the chemical weapons and other things. And we were thinking, wow, we're going to war and 
20% aren't coming back. And, and at that time, five of us were in my room in the barracks talking about this. Well, 20% means one of us five isn't coming back. So we had the chance to talk about heaven, talk about eternal life, talk about Jesus and say, hey, if you're not coming back, are you, do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're going to go when you die? And the one who didn't, the one who said he wasn't worried about it, the one who said that he would have time when he was older, is the one that didn't get older. But he, he figured he'll get religious when he's older. He figures, yeah, you know, I'll get married, I'll raise kids, I'll, I'll get religious. He never did. And I think of that a lot. I think of that uh, this time of year, and, and then uh, plus I found out they're scheduling a reunion, a 30-year reunion um, this summer. So I might be attending that. Hope to. All right. So these are the examples. Luke 8, Luke 9, Luke 21. The sin that so easily entangles us, the encumbrance that weighs us down. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down, same language, with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and that day will not come on you and, and uh, suddenly like a trap it will come upon those who dwell on the face of the earth. And Anyway, this is the admonishment to uh, being on the alert for the Jewish people for the second advent of Jesus Christ. Another passage that describes what happens when you're weighed down. 1 Corinthians 9, this was Paul's take on it. And on the basis of 1 Corinthians 9, a lot of people think that Paul also wrote Hebrews. I think the author of Hebrews was familiar with Paul, traveled with Paul, knew Paul's writings, helped Paul write some of them. If Luke is the author of Hebrews, then Luke was also the scribe for Paul when he wrote the prison epistles. I mean the pastoral epistles, excuse me. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. There's a purpose for why you're running. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You know, if you're going to be a peak athlete, if you're going to compete at that kind of elite level, that requires a ton of effort, a ton of work, sacrifice, a whole different mindset and lifestyle. And, uh, you know, these, these pinnacle athletes and, you know, Michael Phelps, these swimmers and the things they do, you think they just wake up one day, jump in a pool and, and win gold, gold medals? Not at all. And so it requires self-control, requires discipline. That's what we require in our Christian walk. Discipline to run the race, not to be disqualified. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You know, we live in the perfect town for this because this, uh, this is the Lance Armstrong territory, right? I mean, you talk about a guy that got disqualified, had everything stripped from him, every past victory was revoked. Think about it. And, and until he was exposed for the lying fraud cheat that he was... He was well respected and esteemed and amazed because he'd, he'd overcome cancer and he'd done all this stuff and, and uh, was a role model and had foundations and all this other stuff until the cheating was found and to have it all stripped away, have all of it revoked. And so we think about uh, the ministry in this way as well and being faithful in the Word of God and living out your faith and all these things. And Paul would not want to be disqualified from any uh, crown that Jesus would offer him at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. Finally, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Here's a particular encumbrance. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. That's an encumbrance. That'll tie you down. That'll impair your run. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
That whole chain of rhetorical questions builds on the primary premise. Don't be bound together. It's an encumbrance that will slow us down, hinder our race. Now the race that's set before you, what kind of race are we on? (laughs) Well, it's interesting You know, runners like to spe- uh, like to specialize. You know, you got Usain Bolt kind of guy, and he's the fastest man on earth. But he's how far is he really running? You know. So you have your sprinters, the short distance guys. Then you got your long distance guys, your runner, your uh, marathon runners, and other long distance running, or bicycling, or whatever. All right. But it's interesting is that the Christian way of life, our walk with the Lord. We don't know when the finish line is. <laughs> we, th- we weren't given that, that finish line up front. We're given salvation and then told to run. And we keep running. And we keep running. And I'm not going to use a Forrest Gump illustration because I despise that movie. But <laughs> keep running, keep running, keep running. Okay? Because if we're still on earth, we're not done. And that's the point. And how long is this race? Well, I don't know, but it's still going on, so let's keep running. And maybe it is over tomorrow. Maybe it's not over for 100 years. We don't know. But it could be today, so let's keep running. And especially if I'm on the verge of losing heart. There's a test, and it's getting the best of me. And I've, Man, it's been lingering now for weeks, for months. I'm tired of it. And I'm just so on the verge. I'm sick of it. I'm so on the verge of just walking away. Would it make any difference if you knew the trumpet was sounding at 3.30 this afternoon? Or, you know, sometime imminently, can we, just, can we just go one more hour? One more hour. Every believer has works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should complete the running of our race. They're prepared beforehand. And God knows. He's got a plan. And some have a very short race. And... Um, Human sadness when somebody dies young and we think, oh, they had so much in front of them. No, their race was complete. And God knows best as far as when each race needs to end. We don't. We don't understand it. Sometimes we grieve because we don't understand it. But it is what it is. I think the, um, the passages here, Acts 13, 36, talk about David when he accomplished the purpose of God in his generation. It's a marvelous verse. And it it spotlights a truth that applies to everybody. We are where we are because God put us here. And the purpose we have in our generation, we've got to run that course. And then we can finish our course. And we can, can, uh, you know, be buried with our fathers and and, uh, the next generation can take it from there. Ephesians 2.10 says we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I believe this was the divine decrees. This, God prepared these before the foundation of the world. And then when He saved us, He crafted us specifically to do those works, to run that race. 2 Timothy 4.7, Paul was able to say, I've finished my race. He knew he was done. That he had run well. That there was a crown waiting for him. There was never a question that when he finished that race, the crown was there because he had run with endurance. And here, Hebrews 12.1, run with endurance the race that's set before us. Did you notice in Hebrews 12.1 that we don't get to choose the race we want? It doesn't say run with endurance any race you, you feel like or go, go run somebody else's race if you think it's better than yours or easier than yours or more fair It's not fair that you run the race. No, this is the race He's given you. If you think it's unfair, then you're assigning God unfairness, but God's the one that put it before you. And everything He does is righteous. How sad it is to consider the race over when it's not yet over. To just stop and say, that's good enough. Or to say, I've laid hold of my prize when I haven't laid hold of it yet. We were just in Philippians last year and Philippians 3 talks about this. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward. 
He says, brethren, I don't consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward, that I might lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. All right. Well, I saved us a lot of page flipping by not looking at all those verses on the, on the slide, but I'm out of time. The communion Sundays are always the short Sundays. We're going to be told how to do this in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That uh, keeping your eyes on the Lord is the surest way to run with endurance that race. You can't get lost if you're looking at Him the whole way. But you take your eyes off the Lord, <laughs> good luck running with endurance the race that's set before. You're going to be off course quicker than you realize. You're going to be running off into the Thule somewhere and you're nowhere near the course. So that becomes a problem. We'll pick up on this next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to study this morning. I thank you for the book of Hebrews. I pray, Father, that the brothers and sisters of this congregation would recognize the purpose for which you've created them. They would embrace the truth of the word of God every day, in every decision, in every facet of our lives. And we lay aside the things that have to be laid aside and we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for these metaphors and for the truth that they represent. Help us to understand them. Help us to live them. Help us to communicate them to our children, to others. Father, thank you for this tremendous privilege of assembling together. We live in a free land. Father, uh, I just I want to say a special prayer this morning for Cameroon, a pastor friend of mine there. Um, they, uh, he has a young believer in his church. Her name is Linda. She's our sister. She's not been saved very long at all. And her brother was shot and killed yesterday and they just learned about it this morning. And Father, uh, from Sunday to Sunday, they, sometimes they can finish church and sometimes they go hide in the jungle because uh, there's a civil war going on and it's just a bad situation, Father. So I, I do pray for them and I pray that, that uh, you sustain them in every possible way. I pray for Linda, that you help her to grow. She's not going to understand it. She can't understand it. She's so new in her faith, but uh, help Pastor Ezekiel to shepherd her and to show her the scriptures and, and comfort her. You are the God of all comfort, Father. I thank you and I do praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. The uh, Sunday School is going to come in here and join us for communion in just a moment. In the meantime, we will uh, sing a hymn. Hymn number one in the red hymnal. Oh, worship the King.